a great way to lead into this sermon on Matthew 18. Let's bow and just pray for just a moment as we open uh, God's Word. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. As we talk about who is the greatest in the kingdom, I know that some of us here are not in the kingdom of God. We may be religious, we may be in the habit of going to church, but we're not saved. There's no joy in us, there's no hope in us, and the way we behave is anything but godly. Father, I also know there's a lot here this morning who are saved and are walking with you in obedience. Whatever our condition, we need this sermon of Jesus today in Matthew 18 about what is greatness in your eyes. Forgive us for our pride and arrogance when we think we know. Father, help us to hear from your Holy Spirit this morning who inspired these words spoken by Jesus, second member of the Trinity, as He teaches those who know Him what greatness really is. We pray this in His mighty name. Amen. We're currently in a series called Following Jesus, which is looking at the five sermons of Jesus in the gospel of Matthew. Matthew built his sermon, I mean, he built his uh, gospel around five sermons. Sometimes it's called the teaching gospel because of that. The theme of the five different sermons of Jesus in this gospel is this, you and I can't just follow Jesus any which way we want, which is a rampant problem in the evangelical church in America. I'm just picking on our own country. It's a systemic problem in all denominations, but especially even in Bible-believing churches where we pick and we choose and we can do this. Jesus is very clear. We're going to be a true disciple of His. If we're truly going to be born again, we have to come on His terms to follow Him. I noted last week that John Piper, who not only is a popular pastor but is a New Testament scholar, earned his doctorate in New Testament from Munich in Germany, as he's dug into Matthew over the decades, he said that he has found in Matthew a burden that he doesn't see as much in the other three canonical gospels. He says as he's dove into Matthew, Matthew seems to have a, a, a special burden about the danger of being a spiritual counterfeit, of looking like the real thing going through the outward motions, and yet internally being rotten inside and being a counterfeit. And so Matthew has this heightened alert, to, and he reports some of the teachings of Jesus that the others don't as much, emphasizing that issue. This weekend we come to the fourth sermon of Jesus, Matthew 18, and it generated from a question, a question that all of us probably have asked or wondered about, even in our own selfishness. Well, who is the greatest in the kingdom? We know the disciples even argued over that. These were not the most sterling collection of individuals at times. And so Jesus is going to answer their question. The question's posed in verse 1. We'll look at that. But he's going to define greatness in this sermon. So Becky leaned over and said, bring him the word of God. And I said, well, it's easy when you're preaching the sermon Jesus preached. I'm just kind of borrowing the sermon here. Jesus is going to answer who's the greatest in the kingdom by telling us three things that define greatness in God's eyes. So whether you know Christ, whether you don't know Christ, whether you're not sure if you know Christ, 
Here is a message of great relevance for any about what defines greatness in God's eyes. The three things are this, and, and all, the key to all three of these things is being others-focused. One of the most difficult things for a sinful human being to be is others-focused. And Jesus says that is what defines greatness in God's eyes. The three things He's going to emphasize, putting others first, secondly, being truthful with others, and thirdly, forgiving others. This will be very encouraging to some of us. This will be very painful for some of us, and it'll be a mixture of both for a lot of us. First of all, putting others first. Verses 1 to 14, this is the call to humility. Now, I want to I just offer a uh, clarification up front. It's very easy to come to a chapter like Matthew 18, and it's called to be others-focused. It's called to humility, and somehow think and, and have this kind of a misunderstanding. This is pretty common somehow think that Jesus is telling us here, well, this is the way to live in order to be saved. This is how God expects us to live to earn His favor. This is how we're to live if we want to go to heaven. You try to follow the Ten Commandments. You try to be humble. This kind of thinking is very common in a lot of churches that it's the gospel of be good. As long as I can try to be good, that will save me. That is not the gospel. That is not what Jesus is doing here. The gospel is first and foremost not about earning my salvation by the way I live. That's moralism. That's religion. That's paganism. The gospel, if you don't hear anything else I say today, hear this. The gospel is about a radical spiritual rebirth that leads to a certain kind of lifestyle. And if that lifestyle doesn't follow, then whatever it was you embraced wasn't the gospel. And hence, Matthew's warnings about the danger of being a spiritual counterfeit. And they keep coming, and they keep coming, and they keep coming. Just being part of a community that is others-focused doesn't save anybody. There's lots of caring communities around the world that are not gospel-centered in the least. The Bible's clear the only way to know God and be reconciled is to repent. That means owning my sin, stop the excuses, stop the anger, stop the disobedience, stop the lying, go the other direction, humble myself, make restitution where it needs to be made, and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Then, the Bible says, once we've been born again, it leads to a certain lifestyle. That's the point. So again, the message in Matthew 18 is not, live like this, then you'll be saved. Uh Uh-uh. It's the other way around message here is, once you truly have been born again and undergone a radical spiritual rebirth, this is what life will look like. And if the pattern of your life doesn't look like this, then there's great odds you're not really converted and born again. That's, that's where we're heading here. And that's why I want to offer that up front so it doesn't just look like a gospel of be good and therefore you're going to be saved. That is not at all what Jesus is saying. All right, putting others first. The disciples ask a question, as we noted, most of these sermons are aimed with the disciples as the primary audience, and then the crowds, Matthew says there's always three groups listening to Jesus, religious leaders, the crowds, the disciples. Most of his sermons are aimed at the disciples with the crowd listening, and some of the religious leaders uh, not only listening, but plotting, (laughs) scheming. But this one is, like the others, like most of them, aimed at the disciples primarily. In fact, it's generated 
as a response to one of the questions. So here it is. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? We know they argued about this among themselves and were embarrassed by it when Jesus caught them. In response to their question, Jesus calls over a little child. The Greek word here, paideon, can mean anything from a very young toddler to a pre-adolescent. So probably, is, the context seems to indicate a, a small child. But Jesus calls over a child to explain what real humility is, what being others-focused is, verses 2 to 5. Calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them, and he said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you become like children. Now, that could mean a lot of different things, so I'm going to clarify that in a minute. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself, ESV says humbles himself, NIV says whoever takes the lowly position, either way is a good way to translate the Greek word there, whoever takes this posture, like this child, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives such a child in my name receives me. Now, what does he mean, whoever humbles himself like this child? Obviously, there's a way in which children aren't humble, and there's a way in which they are humble. So, what exactly is Jesus saying? Because children, if you have any and have been around any, you know they can be incredibly self-absorbed in their own little self-sovereign. That's Paul Tripp's phrase. I love it. Kids are a self-sovereign unto themselves. They live in their own little universe bubble, and they want what they want, and they want it. So, what what exactly does he mean? Unless you become like that, you're not going to get in the kingdom. Doing some of my research, I came across one of my favorite New Testament scholars, Dr. Michael Wilkin. Teaches out at Talbot Seminary in California. Got a great commentary on Matthew. And he clarifies, and I think he did it very well in getting at what Jesus was using a child to illustrate. Quote, Jesus here is not commending the inherent innocence of children. He wasn't saying anything about that. He wasn't complimenting that children are somehow innocent. They're not. The Old Testament, he says, has a balanced view of both the sinfulness and the value of children. Instead of pointing to the innocence of a child, Jesus is using the child as an object lesson on humility that comes from vulnerability. The humility of a child consists of the inability to advance their own cause apart from the help and resources of a parent. Now listen to this last two sentences. What Jesus is celebrating, he's celebrating the humility that comes from a child's weakness, defenselessness, and vulnerability. Those who want to enter the kingdom of God must turn away from their own power and self-seeking, close quote. And that is why it's so hard to enter the kingdom of God. That is why people sit in church and can sit in church for years and never enter the kingdom of God because Jesus says, if you want to be his real follower, you have to turn away from your own power and your own self-seeking. Now, next in verses 6 to 9, under this first point, putting others first, he talks about, and he issues a very strong warning, if we're going to be putting others first, one of the greatest wrongs we can do is cause them to sin then. If we're causing somebody to sin, we're certainly not putting them first, verses 6 through 9. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck 
and be drowned in the depth of a sea. I don't know how many of you have seen a millstone either in real life or in a picture. Uh, Becky and I have actually stepped on a millstone. You can walk around. It's huge. Think of a large tractor tire, but something made out of solid granite or solid rock. These things can weigh a, a, a more, well more than a ton. Imagine that thing, you know, you're chained to it, and then the whole thing is heaved into the ocean. You're going one direction, and you're going very fast. And that's straight down. <laughs> there is no hope. That's what Jesus says. It's better for that than if you cause someone else to sin. That's a very strong warning. Very strong warning. It says, he goes on, um, woe to the world for the temptations to sin, verse 7, for it is necessary that temptations come, but, but woe, this is one of these Old Testament woes, uh, when that bird begins to sing, you don't want to be around. Woe to the one whom that temptation comes. I would just add, if you're here today and you are involved, intentionally causing people to sin, or involved in abuse, this is a very sober, serious warning here. I mean, it, it, is, it is intense. Woe to that one. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into the Gehenna of fire. I know I made a mention recently that, interesting, that Paul in all 13 of his letters in the Bible never mentions hell by name. He talks about judgment. But nobody mentioned hell as frequently and with such graphic, terrifying language as Jesus, the gentle shepherd. That's why when theological liberals or people in other religions like a Gandhi come along and say, oh, they admire the teachings of Jesus because he was such a loving. He, he was a loving prophet. He was a grace-filled prophet. But on the other hand, nobody preached about judgment and fire and hell and damnation more regularly and with such intensity as Jesus did. It's, it's a little unsettling in that sense. And here he doesn't hold back at all about those that are causing other people to sin. Finally, to drive home the concept of putting others first in humility, he tells a story about a wandering sheep that reveals God's concern for people. And his point is this should be the model of love we have for others, verses 12 to 14. And what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 in the mountains and go search for the one that went astray? Obviously, yeah. If he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices it over it more than over the 99 that went astray. So it is with the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones, that never should one of these little ones perish. So it is never the will of God that one of these little ones would perish. So there is his first point of putting others first. It is so countercultural. It is so counter our human nature, counter my human nature. The call to sacrificial humility. And again, it's not a call, he's not holding up children in one certain way because they are sinful and they're selfish, but he is holding them up in another way uh, about their weakness, their defenselessness, their vulnerability. And he said, that is what I'm talking about. You have to turn away from self and power seeking 
and powering up over others, or you're not my disciple. You can say anything you want. You can give all the lip service in the world. But as the Puritans continue to warn us, there's going to be a lot of pastors and a lot of church leaders and a lot of bishops in hell because they simply use their position. If you're in a position of authority in any way, in the military, in the police, as a teacher or as a pastor or a counselor, go on. If you're in a position of authority and you're using that to power up over others and, you, and abuse, there's going to be a strong judgment, very strong judgment. Secondly, being truthful with others. In these verses, Jesus now gives us a pattern to follow when we fail to put others first and end up sinning and wounding somebody. And this is all of us. We've all done it this week, and we've all had it done to us this week, and we will do it again next week. So because this is a sermon about putting others first, this is a sermon about who is the greatest, he has this next section about if we're going to be others-focused, it has to be Part of that is being truthful with others. This is a very, very important section. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, and here he's using an example, but there's a broader principle, obviously. If someone sins against you, go tell them their fault between you and them alone. They listen, then you've gained your brother. So this is a call to be truthful with other people when they have sinned against you. And obviously, they may come to you, but same thing. If we true, now this means somebody has truly sinned against us and they didn't, they didn't just do something we didn't like or the great sin of our day, they offended us. <laughs> we won't go down that road. They offended us. This isn't just about small things that are irritations. This is somebody who is either I've sinned deliberately or I've done something grievous or something's been done to me. And it means at least two things Jesus is saying here So I unpack this. Number one, if somebody has wronged us, sinned against us, and we decide that's, you know, that's an, an agreed, and it actually doesn't just say against us. If brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. So there's a, there's a privacy principle here. That's the key. So if someone has wronged or sinned against us, Here's the first thing it means. I need to go to talk to them before I talk to anybody else. And if there's a principle violated in the church, that is probably one of the most common ones violated in the church. If I really feel someone has wronged me, or if you feel somebody's wronged you, when we feel somebody's wronged us, we must talk to them before anyone else. Even, (laughs) what's he going to say? Even if you're convinced they won't listen to you. How often over the years in ministry I have heard that rolled out. I'll give you an example. A number of years ago, another church had a number of pastors on, I think we had nine pastors in that church, and I got a letter one day about one of them. Long, one of these long epistles. I want to bring to your attention Pastor so-and-so, and then it was two pages of Pastor so-and-so's offenses against this person. So I wrote back basically a one-line response, which was, have you talked to him about this? Next day I get back an email. I knew you were going to say that, but they, he won't listen. I know that, so I'm coming to you. To which I wrote back another one-line response. 
I'm sorry, you need to follow the Bible, you need to talk to him first. Love, Pastor Jay. That's one of the oldest excuses in the book. Oh, I would do this, but it isn't going to do anything, so I'll just bypass it, ignore what Scripture says, and I'll, I'll go talk to other people about it. In fact, I'll just go on social media and basically obliterate them. Some of us have done that, by the way. Shame on us for doing that. Shame on us the way some of us are using social media. Some of us need to repent. I'm serious. Some of us need to go to others and apologize. The body of Christ should not behave like that. That's not what Jesus says. He said the first thing to do if somebody has sinned against us, I mean, if we really feel like this is something that needs to be addressed, a lot of sin, quite honestly, let's be, let's be, if we're going to be grace-based in our home and stuff, we just got to let stuff go most of the time. But if there's truly something that is a grievous sin, we got to do it, we got to deal with it. We're to go to that person first. If you do not go to that person first, you are sinning and you are gossiping. And their response isn't your responsibility. My responsibility is to follow what Scripture says. And I have to make sure I'm clear when I go to them. I can't go to them, beat around the bush, and then, well, I did go to them. Did you talk about that? Well, we didn't talk about that, but I went to them. You got to go and talk about what the issue was. Secondly, this means. We must refuse to listen to grievances about other people when they're brought to us. Again, the privacy principle. Notice verse 15. Let me ask my favorite question. What does the text say? Just between the two of you. That's where it's to begin. So I have to not only refuse to talk to other people before I talk to that person. Secondly, I have to refuse to listen to people's when they bring their grievances to me about somebody else. Privacy principle. And let me emphasize here, be very careful about talking, about taking someone else's side against someone else. It's, it's, and if you're in a helping profession, you're a pastor, you're a counselor, uh, you're a school teacher, you're an administrator, um, you're police, you're in some kind of a profession where you are involved in ongoing conflict problems, which it is so easy to get pulled into the vortex of sympathy, of listening, and pretty, pretty soon I'm, I'm siding with them. And that's why when someone comes to me and they're upset with somebody else, like the letter I just mentioned about the pastor, my first question needs to be, have you talked to them? That's the, that needs to be the first thing you ask. Beware of violating Proverbs 26, 17. Like one who seizes a dog by the ears is a passerby who meddles in a quarrel, not their own. I want, be, like one who seizes a dog by the ears is a passerby who meddles in a quarrel. So be very careful of taking up someone else's offense. That's the point. And yet we do it so easily. I do it so easily. I violated that. You violated it. And it's destructive in relationships. The only exception, by the way, verses 16 and 17, to the privacy principle, in other words, of keeping this thing between two people, is if we're dealing with a, somebody who's a professing Christian who will not repent. I mean, they might say the words, I'm sorry, but nothing changes with them. Nothing is changing. And so Jesus addresses that in verses 16 and 17. If he does not listen... 
That doesn't mean just listen and, oh, yeah, yeah. But if things don't change, take one or two others with you that the charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, then you need to tell it to the broader ecclesia of the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. That doesn't mean be mean to them. That means we need to have a different posture towards them. They need to be viewed as unsaved, unconverted, possibly unsafe. And therefore, our posture towards them is protection of ourself and also, what? Evangelism. Because now we know we're dealing with someone who is not Christian. This can lead to something called church discipline. That's not a phrase used in the Bible, but according to Paul's letter in 1 Timothy and his letter to the Galatians, this is one of the duties church leaders have. Is to, they have to sometimes get involved with somebody who is a member of a church, a regular tender in a church, involved in ongoing sin. People have talked to them. They're not changing. Uh, take an example, somebody is living in sin with somebody else. They're living with a boyfriend or a girlfriend or somebody's, and they're involved sexually, but they're not married which is, the Bible says, is a sin. And if somebody's gone to them and several have gone to them and they're still insisting on, oh, I'm going to still come to church, but we're going to do this. That's where church leaders often get involved. That is one of the duties of elders. I remember a period in our last church where Becky and I ended up with our elders and our leaders getting involved in doing church discipline against four different missionaries, all f- pretty much in rapid succession. Adultery, pornography, insubordination, lying, it was a mess. As far as I know, only one of them potentially repented eventually. Galatians 6.1 reminds us of the goal of church discipline and its restoration, not obliteration. Galatians 6.1, brothers, if someone is caught in a sin then you who are more mature should restore him gently. The Greek word for restore there is a medical term uh, referring to setting a broken bone. If you've ever set a broken bone, you don't just take it and go, (laughs) right? You restore it gently, otherwise you cause further damage. Lastly, we come to perhaps one of the toughest parts of this sermon, and that is forgiving others. Verses 21 to 35. And here Jesus is teaching us two things. And so we're going to look at both of these things. First, in verses 21 to 31, the hypocrisy of not forgiving others. And then secondly, the danger of not forgiving others. He's going to address both of these. So first of all, the hypocrisy of not forgiving others. And to do this, some of you know your Bibles very well. Some of you, it's, you're, you're brand new to a Bible. It's good for those of us who've been here a long time to remember. Some people are not familiar with this stuff. So, Jesus tells a story of a king who forgives the debt, a massive debt, of one of his servants to the tune of several billion dollars, and he just forgives it. It's quite a story, verse 21 and following. Peter came up and he said, Lord, how often do I have to forgive someone when they sin against me? We all wonder that in our heart. As many as seven times? Now, that may sound generous. And I think in Peter's mind it was. I'll tell you why in a minute. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Or 70 times seven. In other words, unending. 
And then here's the story. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven will be compared to the king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, you may have a little marginal note that says this is something like equivalent to at least 20 or more years of wages of a laborer. This, we're talking something in the neighborhood, some scholars even put the figure higher, of millions, hundreds of millions, even perhaps crossing over into the billions. It's an unpayable debt, unpayable debt. Since it could not be paid, the, matter ordered, the master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children, and all he had, you heard of the old-fashioned debtor's prison or slavery, and payment had to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him with patience, have patience with me, What's he, what's he say? I will pay you everything. Well, he's, he, that's impossible. Verse 27, and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Right there, there there's a big core. I mean, that's the core of the gospel right there. Here's a servant who owed his master a debt that wouldn't be payable in, in decades and decades, and the master said, you're done. And then, what's this servant do? He turns around, finds someone below him on the totem pole, the org chart, who owes him a few months' wages, and he nails him. When that same servant went out, verse 28, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a few hundred denarii. Guess is, that's a few months' wages. Seizing him, he began to choke him. <laughs> so obviously, there's anger here. And he said, pay me what you owe me. Pay it to me. So the fellow servant fell down. Interesting, same wording, pleaded with him, have patience with me, I will pay you. But the story here, completely the opposite reaction. He refused and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported, (laughs) they told on him, they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. I mean, very sobering story of what happens. Now, here's the question for any true born-again Christian. If you know Christ, if His Holy Spirit lives in you, if there's evidence of conversion in your life, here's the story for, I mean, here's the question for you and I from this story. How can any true born-again Christian who is a forgiven, justified sinner who has committed cosmic treason against a holy God and has been forgiven and justified and blessed with tremendous blessing in the promise of eternal life and all that goes with it, how can anybody in that position turn around then and refuse to forgive another human being just because they were lied to? How can I, if I'm a true born-again Christian and been forgiven of an amazing amount of selfishness and depravity? I had a guy after the first service came up to me, and he was in tears, choked up, overwhelmed by how much sin God had forgiven him of over the years. How can anybody take that and then turn around and not forgive somebody just because they were offended? Or just because I was betrayed? Or because I was hurt? or I was attacked, or I was undermined, or I was abused, or I was disappointed, or I was taken advantage of, or robbed, or, I mean, go to, fill in the blank. And the point is, 
That's massive hypocrisy. It's absolutely blatant hypocrisy when I consider the mountain, the Mount Everest of sin and filth and garbage God has forgiven me of and turn around and not forgive somebody for some small thing, even if it's evil. Friends, the Bible shows us that mistreatment is part of life. It's everywhere. I mean, right out of the chute in Genesis, it's everywhere. Bible's filled with examples of people mistreating others, abusing others, taking advantage of others, killing others, torturing others. Cain was jealous over Abel. What did he do? He killed him. Lot's daughters get him drunk. He gets them pregnant. Jacob lied and stole Esau's blessing. Later, Jacob's firstborn son, Reuben, has sex with one of his father's concubines. Then take Joseph. 20% of the Genesis narrative is Joseph. I'm going to do a series in a few weeks on Joseph. Joseph's brothers beat him, betrayed him, dumped him in a pit, and then sold him into slavery. And all the things I just narrated, we're still in Genesis. And the hits keep coming, and they get worse as you go on through the Scriptures. Man's mistreatment of man, women's mistreatment of women, parents' mistreatment of children, husbands' mistreatment of wives, wives' mistreatment of husbands. It goes on and on and on. And we're still hypocrites, massive hypocrites. By the way, notice Peter's question. Verse 21, seven times, told you I'd come back to that. He was actually, I think in his thought, being generous. Why? Because rabbinic Judaism of the day said three times forgiving somebody was evidence and enough to demonstrate you had a forgiving spirit. So let's give Peter credit here that he doubled what the rabbis were saying, even. And I think in his mind, he thought that was pretty generous. And Jesus comes back and is like, no, you idiot, not seven times, not 70 times, seven. It's, it's unending. That's what grace is. That's why we don't get grace. Let me, add, let me add just a couple more practical things here. Never forget something very important. Whenever I experience mistreatment, and again, that was this week for all of us probably, but let's, say, let's, talk, let's move it up, let's take us up a layer. Whenever I experience egregious mistreatment, abuse, attack, lie, betrayal, something that just, you know, knocks you back for a season, whenever I experience that kind of mistreatment, Hear, hear, hear this. This is, this is critical. How I choose to respond shows what I really believe about God. I can say I believe all kinds of things about God. I can say, oh, I've read Arthur Pink, The Sovereignty of God. This is what I believe about God. I can say I've read, I've read Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. This is what I believe about God. I can say I've read Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Here's what I believe about God. I can, I can read the book that had a huge impact on Johnny Erickson Tata, The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination. She said that book pulled her out of her depression. I, I can read all sorts of books and say, oh, that's what I believe about God. That's what I believe about God. And but it's then when somebody abuses me or mistreats me, lies about me, cuts me off in traffic, or does horrendous things. Uh, maybe it was a parent that abused you. Uh, maybe you were abused by a, a pastor or a church leader. How I choose to respond, that's what I really believe about God. Not just what I read in A.W. Tozer and say, oh yeah, yeah, that's what I believe about God. Well, that's good. But lip service is short if I am abused then and I turn around and I give it right back to somebody. Let me mention one other thing about forgiveness. Lacking of forgiveness, not, re- not forgiving, refusing to forgive, not only affects us spiritually and with God, it also affects us 
physically, psychologically, and emotionally. Why? Because it poisons our soul. And it never stays confined between us and that one person. It is sad over the years how many times I have seen people sit in a church year after year and like Gollum, if you don't know who Gollum is, go home and Google, Google Gollum. Gollum from Lord of the Rings, who started one way and by the end of uh, his journey was completely deformed and transformed into something hideous because of a power that overtook him. How many people sit in churches professing to know Christ, but like Gollum over the years, they are slowly deformed, transformed, metamorphosized into something totally different, hideous and ugly because of the poison of bitterness that has been coursing through their veins for decades. That's why there's an old saying. Some of you know the saying, forgiveness is a gift you give to yourself. It's a lot of other things, but that's one. I remember watching an interview a few years ago between George W., 53, I mean 43, President number 43, George W. Bush, and his press secretary, Dana Perino, who's now on the, I think she's on the Five on Afternoon on Fox. I don't have any indication she's born again, but she's certainly a sharp uh, uh, political strategist and a very forceful personality. And they were talking and, and, and recounted an incident in which, and she said, do you remember the time I came into your office and I was so angry at another staffer who I think had betrayed her and she just vented and was mad and spewing and to the president who apparently just stood there and listened for a while. She said, do you remember what you finally told me? And he said, I do. And this is what he told her, quote, yes, I remember. I told you to forgive the person. Don't let it poison you. Don't let it poison you. So that's the hypocrisy of not forgiving others, massive hypocrisy. But then there's the danger of not forgiving others. Verses 32 through verse 35. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger... His master delivered him over to the jailers, or you can translate that word, the tormentors or the prison guards or the torturers even, until he should pay all the debt, which is never because of the size of it. So my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Look at verse 34. In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers, and again, you can translate the Greek word there, pretty strong word, torturer, tormentors, prison guards. So the question is, what, what does Jesus mean here? Inquiring minds want to know that. That's, that's a pretty scary statement. I believe from studying this over and over the years, I think it's pretty clear what he's saying. He's saying this, if I, and I'll put it in first person, if I hold fast to an unforgiving spirit, I will eventually be handed over to the tormentors. I think this, he's not just speaking about emotion, emotional torment. He's talking about something here. I think he's speaking about eternal judgment, and that's very clear from the context here. In other words, I will lose heaven and gain hell. Why? Not because I lost my salvation. I'm proving I never was saved. That's his point. Just to be clear, Jesus is not saying, oh, you earn your way to heaven by forgiving other people. That's not the gospel, and that's not what he's saying. 
I even had somebody after the first service said, is that what he's saying? And I said, no, I said it. He's not saying salvation by forgiving other people. The only way to be reconciled to God is to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. The only way to be reconciled with God is to repent on the Lord Jesus Christ and believe and be saved. Let's be clear of that. What he is saying is if I cling to an unforgiving spirit, if that's my default over the years, then in the end, here's what I'm proving. I'm proving I don't know Christ and I don't get grace. That's what I'm proving. I'm proving I never was saved in the first place. And then he issues a sober warning, same warning back in Matthew 6. If you go back to Matthew 6, in fact, in Matthew 6, he issues it in even more graphic language. If the knife went in, in verse 1835, in, verse, in chapter 6, verse 15, he, he turns the knife and drives it in deeper. Matthew 6, 14 and 15, he's talking about, this is in the Sermon on the Mount, talking about prayer, and he's about ready to move into a section on fasting. But then he gets to the end of the section on prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer. And he's, in an interesting way, he finishes, he said, if you forgive others their trespasses or their sins, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That has vexed many a Christian. What does he mean? Your Father will not forgive you. Once again, let me say it as clearly as I can. The point of Matthew 16, 15. Young people, hear this. This is really, really important. All of us, this is really important, especially as we get older. Some of us just, as we get older, the, the offenses towards us pile up and they congeal like concrete over the years. And by the time we're older in life, we're just bitter. Transform people into something so hideous because we've let it just calcify. So hear this. The point of Matthew 6.15 and Matthew 18.35, is that if I allow this kind of toxic grudge sludge to build up over the years, it will simply eventually show I don't know Christ. That's his point. The reason, again, is not because you forgive people so you can go to heaven. The reason is because by not forgiving others, and if that becomes my pattern, if that's my posture, I'm just proving I don't understand grace, and I'm just proving I'm not really one of God's own. His Spirit doesn't live in me because I don't understand what mercy is all about, what grace is all about. All right, let's finish up. How do you forgive somebody if you're struggling with bitterness? I think we've got to end on a very practical note. Number one, make sure you've been born again. Make sure you know Christ. Make sure you know the gospel. There's a great passage in Lamus Rob in the book that doesn't come out in the movie, and after Jean Valjean is forgiven by the old priest, He's never experienced anything like it in his life. And he goes out into the woods, there's a whole chapter in the book, where he has this, this total grace meltdown because it was such a shock to his system to experience grace. Point is, we're in a lot better position to forgive if we've experienced God's grace. That's the first thing to make sure. Secondly, own your bitterness and ask God to help you start the process of forgiveness. Look, at bitterness is one of the most difficult sins to recognize and own and admit to in our lives. It's very hard for people who are consumed by anger and bitterness to admit it. And then beyond that, to own it and start doing something about it. And so often our default is, 
oh, I'm not really bitter, I'm just grieving, or I'm not really bitter, I've been hurt, or you don't understand what's happened to me, or I'm just sad, or I'm wounded. Or, you know. And while these things can get mixed into the grieving, they easily become excuses to justify our anger and our bitterness. And we need to remember the call to forgive is not a call, hear this, the call to forgive is not a call to downplay what's happened to you. You know, it, the call to forgive is not some kind of a divine eraser. Oh, just pretend like it didn't happen. That's not the call. Many forget that forgiveness is an act of blame. You're actually in forgiving somebody saying, you did this and I'm letting it go. Forgiveness is a deliberate decision and it begins with admission, confession, repentance, and then freedom. And it can take time. Thirdly, attempt to be reconciled if possible. That's... People get reconciliation and forgiveness mixed up, and they, and they conflate the two. They're not the same. You can forgive somebody and have no relationship with them in the future. It depends, number one, if they're alive, number two, if they're, if they're, if they're even safe to be around and if, and if they have repented. There are some people it is wise not to reconcile with, but I still have to forgive. So forgiveness is mandatory. Reconciliation is desirable but optional depending on if the person is alive if they've repented, and if they're safe to be around. The final question is, well, what if, I, what if the person is alive and I'm trying to reconcile and they'll have nothing to do with me? The best advice I've heard comes from Athanasius. Athanasius was the 4th century Egyptian bishop, and he said this, when dealing with those who oppose you, out-rejoice your adversary. There's how you do it. He writes, let us be courageous and rejoice always. While the Lord is with us, our foes cannot hurt us. So he's echoing Paul in Romans 12, don't take revenge. If your enemy is hungry, feed him, and by that you'll be heaping burning coals on their head. So the rewards of forgiving are release from prison and God's assurance that we really are one of His own. Father, thank You for this sermon of Jesus. It is a pointed sermon. It is a long sermon, but it is so needed in the body of Christ. We're just like everywhere else. There's a lot of pain, a lot of hurt a lot of abuse. Forgive us when we have done this to others. And for some of us here today, I pray that you would convict us until we go make things right. And for others, Father, we just need to let things go and we need to forgive. And I ask that you would help us do that and model that as a church to a dark, hurting world that just doesn't get it. If we don't show it, how in the world will they get it? In Jesus' name.